Well, good morning. Greetings from Redeemer Fellowship Church in Watertown, Mass. We are so grateful for the partnership with RGC. You know, just the way prayerful and encouraging and financial support, like BJ was praying, it's just such an encouragement. And BJ's been a dear friend, and uh, it's a blessing to be up here with seven other guys from RFC to come and just be encouraged with the grace of God that is among you, and your faces and your smiles and your cheerful, joyful, robust, grateful singing. What a privilege it's been this morning. Um, I want to draw your attention this morning to a particular passage in the New Testament in Mark's Gospel, Mark chapter 6. I want to read it first and then we'll consider it in our time this morning. Mark chapter 6, verses 30 down through verse 46. We'll read it together, then I'll pray, and then we'll consider the word. Let's hear God's word. Mark chapter 6, verse 30, down through 46. The apostles returned to Jesus and told him all that they had done and taught. And he said to them, Come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while. For many were coming and going, and they had no leisure even to eat. And they went away in the boat to a desolate place by themselves. Now many saw them going and recognized them. And they ran there on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. When they went ashore, he saw a great crowd. And he had compassion on them. Because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things. And when it grew late, his disciples came to him and said, This is a desolate place, and the hour is now late. Send them away to go into the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. But he answered them, You give them something to eat. And they said to him, Shall we go and buy 200 denarii worth of bread and give it to them to eat? And he said to them, How many loaves do you have? Go and see. And when they found it out, they said, five and two fish. And he commanded them all to sit in groups on the grass. And they sat down in groups by hundreds and fifties. And taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing. And broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to set before the people. And he divided the two fish among them all. And they all ate. And were satisfied. And then they took up twelve baskets of full of broken pieces and of the fish. And those who ate the loaves were five thousand men. Immediately he made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side to Bethsaida. Well, he dismissed the crowd. And after he had taken leave of them, he went up on the mountain to pray. This is God's word. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you would take this word, which is the living word, and make it live to us. May we hear the good shepherd's voice as he speaks. May your sheep hear, believe and respond, 
and rejoice and be renewed in Christ's voice. Our good shepherd, we pray. In his name, amen. What do you need this morning? What do you need? I I suppose I should clarify what I mean by need. Because sometimes the word need and want kind of get melded together into one phrase. We might say, I need a new phone. I need a new car. I, I, I need, I need a break. I, I need, and you fill in the blank, whatever the need is. But really, those, those are wants. They're not necessities, if, if we think about it. Some psychologists in previous generations have identified like six core human needs that we have. And in, in those categories, we'd have things like food and drink and sleep. Uh, shelter, those types of things. Those are kind of basic core needs. So when I ask you the question, what do you need this morning? I'd like to narrow that down a bit. Restricting it from kind of the atmosphere of wants and drilling down into the needs. What are the, what are the needs that you have this morning? Because we come to this passage and we, we find that the people in the story, there's needs from beginning to end. Different people, different needs. But there's one central figure in the whole story who meets everybody's needs. The disciples, the people in the crowd that are following him, and there's Jesus. And he meets their needs. He does it in a way that really shows himself to be the shepherd that cares for his people. We'll think about that in a bit. But for now, I think the main point, the big, kind of the big idea that I want to lay out here at the beginning for you to kind of track where we're going this morning, kind of an argument from the passage, is that only Jesus, only Jesus can take care of your greatest needs. Only Jesus can take care of your greatest needs. I don't think Mark is primarily trying to teach us about taking a rest or getting food when it's late. I think he's trying to show us that Jesus is unique. And only he can take care of your greatest needs. What we're going to see this morning, just kind of walking through this passage, is that the Good Shepherd provides some things for his people that he's interacting with. And we'll go through three movements through the passage to see that Jesus alone can take care of our greatest needs. The first is he, he, he provides rest for the weary. Rest for the weary. We see this in... Not only the beginning of the passage, but I think at the end of the passage as well. So we'll come back to this later on. But in verses 30 through 32, we notice that he provides rest for the weary. Notice, if you'd look with me at verse 30 through 32. It says right here in verse 30 that the apostles returned to Jesus. That should prompt a question, where did they come from? If we go back to earlier in the chapter, chapter 6, verses 7 through 13, Jesus had sent out his apostles... He basically deputizes them, gives them power, tells them to go out and to preach, to teach, to heal, to cast out demons. They are expanding the kingdom. The kingdom is taking ground through his emissaries, preaching the gospel in healing. They're basically doing what he was doing. And now they've returned from that work. And it's really interesting that Jesus observes something about them. And Mark finds it noteworthy that Jesus observes it. What does he observe? After they had told him all that they had done and taught, he said to them, verse 31, come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while. I find this really interesting. Here is Jesus. 
truly divine and fully human. And his heart is is so inclined towards his disciples when they come back from doing the type of work that he has been doing, he observes the tired. And he tells them to rest. I just find that striking that he's concerned about them in that way. And that Mark finds it noteworthy for us to see a window into the type of type of shepherd that Jesus is. This is who he is. He's a caring, loving, concerned Savior. He's concerned with things like his people taking a nap and getting rest. How about that? He provides the prescription that they should get away and rest. Because people, it says in verse 31, people, many were coming and going and they had no leisure even to eat. So they're devoid of rest and devoid of food. And I think Mark is setting it up that he's the one who actually gives you rest and food. We'll see that some more as well. What are some implications for us to think about in this passage? Well, I think we certainly run at a no less frantic pace than people in the first century. People are busy. Is that a thing in Vermont? Everyone, you, you greet somebody, say, how are you doing? Oh, I'm so busy. I'm busy. Everyone's busy. It's like a badge. I'm busy. Keeping up with my busyness. I'm working hard. You sleeping? Not really. I'm busy. <laughs> Resting? No. Just busy. Crushing it. It's the rhythm of life. You know, it's so interesting. It's a God, in, God who knows all things. This is the type of God we would expect if he knows that we're prone to busyness and restlessness. That he would, he would prescribe. He would create a calendar, basically, and set it up in such a way that his people get rest. And that's exactly what he does from the very beginning. In the garden, as Adam and Eve were created, God models the rest of the Sabbath when he rests on the seventh day, not because he was tired, but because he looked back at what he created and he glorified himself and he was satisfied with what he made and he enjoyed it. And then he prescribes for his people, likewise, a day, one in seven, to rest. And that rest is to be characterized by not primarily taking naps, though that's not a bad idea. That's not the sum and substance of what the Sabbath is about. It is about resting in God and being refreshed in what he's made. It's a time to gather together to worship. To set aside daily works that we normally would do and prioritize the Lord's Day where we gather together. So even in one sense, by coming here today to RGC to hear the word of God, to set aside this time when you could be doing other things, to prioritize the gathering of the Lord's people on the Lord's day, you are listening to Jesus' instruction. By God's wisdom, knowing that we are busy people, that he would say, come away, not by yourselves, but as a church, come, come away together and rest a while. And this gathering under the word, in the prayers, and the songs, and the fellowship together is a renewal to your souls. And you should see Sunday morning as a time of rest. Where we come together and rest. Primarily resting, not so much just from our work, but resting in God. Because Jesus would be the one who would say to those who had perverted and uh, abused the Sabbath, he would say, all who are weary and heavy laden, what? Come to me, come to me, come to me and find rest for your souls. So Jesus is one who not only prescribes rest, you need to rest, but he provides rest. Come to me. What do you need this morning? Well, if you've got a pulse, you need rest. 
And I know, I know a man who prescribes rest. And not only does he prescribe it, but Jesus provides it. Rest in me. Only Jesus can take care of your greatest needs. Second, the good shepherd provides rest for the weary, but also care for the needy. We see this in verses 33 through 34. Look with me, if you would, at verse 33. Now many saw them going and recognized them. And so they begin running on foot from all the towns to get ahead of them. So this is the crowd's response to Jesus' plan for his disciples to get away and get rest after they've come back. They saw, recognized, and ran. They came after him. Just just imagine this scene. Jesus gets the disciples in the boat, pushing out into the water, and the people from the towns are just coming. They're, they're, they're like they're like dogs that know you have food, and they're just coming and they're just chasing down. And so here's Jesus, the one who can take care of their needs, and he's in the boat and he's trying to give his guys some rest. And the people are just coming and just flooding the exterior of the lake, just coming, flocking to them. They're running, pouring out of the town. Just imagine the people. They're looking like, he can meet our needs. Let's go to him. The disciples are trying to get some rest, but they're looking. They have to be thinking like, the whole town is coming out. Imagine what they might have been thinking. They're trying to get away. Imagine what Jesus was thinking. We don't have to imagine, do we? Because Mark tells us that's one of the reasons he's telling this story is to show us the heart of Christ. As they're working to get to them, verse 34, when he went ashore, he saw the great crowd and he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd and he began to teach them many things. So some things that we can learn about Jesus. This is like a keyhole into his heart to see what is he like. What is Jesus like? Well, the first thing he knows is he goes to shore. He doesn't paddle the other way. He moves to them. He's drawn to these needy people. They have needs. He meets needs. There he goes. He sees the crowds. He sees the crowds and he sees their neediness. We, we don't see crowds often. I mean, when we, when we see people, we're, we're content sometimes just to walk by, not say anything. We don't know them. We just keep going right by. We just, we don't observe people like Jesus. Jesus sees, he sees people. I wish we could see people a little better, don't you? He sees them. Not only does he see them, but he observes something about them. And I think Mark is building. He goes ashore. He sees the crowd. And then verse 34, he had compassion on them. Oh, this word compassion. Such a beautiful New Testament word, compassion. People will note that compassion is a word that was unique to the the Greek language at that time. It was not a commonly used word. One of the reasons it would be is because it wouldn't be a word that necessarily would be uh, looked at as a good word to describe, particularly a man. It would be a weak word. It's a sense of moving outside and moving towards someone to, to be helpful to them in that way. In fact, it's used in the, in the New Testament, the usage of this word is exclusively used of Jesus. That's fascinating. 
One theologian, B.B. Warfield, in his, in his book, The Emotional Life of Our Lord, was observing about Christ, and he just said, what are the descriptions of Jesus? How do we see the New Testament writers talk about Jesus? And he observed the number one descriptive word about Christ, or action coming out of him, is compassion. So this is not a one-off. This is who he is. Our compassionate Lord. It's an internal moving that identifies externally that there's something wrong. But it's not just being perceptive. Like, I see there's a problem. Behind the perceptivity is a willingness to meet the need and fix the problem. It's one thing to be a sensitive person. Intuitive. Sensing. Feeling, looking, and saying, there's a need. Oh, it's another thing to be able to say, I'm willing to meet the need, and then another one to say, I'm able to do it. And that's compassion. It's this inward, emotional love that bubbles up out of Christ that characterizes almost like a tincture of all of his actions. You might be able to say, and I think rightly, the reason why he's standing there looking at these people at this very moment is he's moved by compassion. That's why he became a man for us. Ah, compassionate Lord. There's a lot of descriptions you could make of Jesus as you read him in the Bible and learn about him and see him in the scriptures, but you're not being complete in your understanding of him if you don't see him as compassionate. He's compassionate. So he has compassion on them. Well, why, Mark? Why does he have compassion on them? What's, what's their issue? Well, you see on verse 34, because, Mark says, because they, that is the crowds, were like sheep without a shepherd. Sheep without a shepherd. Some people have observed that when these people would have come out of the town, the customary clothing that they would have been wearing is just white. And we, we see a little bit later that the, the grass is green, so you just have this great group of people running throughout the countryside with the great green background and all of the white on them. And they kind of probably look like sheep in the great multitude. 5,000 men, not counting women and children, that come out to meet Jesus. So you have this landscape of this flowing countryside of people coming to meet Jesus. Thousands and thousands of people. Sheep obviously need to be shepherded. They need to be protected. They need to be protected from the outside, from animals, predators that would come after them. But they also have to be protected from themselves. If we're honest, the sheep aren't the brightest animals that that are around. So they they could could get themselves into trouble. They need a shepherd to, to protect them and lead them and care for them, to guard them, to protect them, to feed them. They need a lot of work. And Jesus looks at the people and he says, they're like sheep without a shepherd. Why are they like this? Well, the religious leaders haven't helped them. The religious leaders use the people for themselves and for their own glory. They protect their authority instead of helping the people. And the governmental people, they let the people down as well. They're not taking care of them. They're selfish. And so here are the people left unto themselves shepherdless. And Jesus looks at the people and he sees them and he sees that they are shepherdless and his heart is burdened for them. It's not just that he notices the people and sees their need and wants to meet the need, but he specifically sees that they need a shepherd. 
That's his heart. But also think about Jesus' Bible. If you're thinking about shepherd in the Bible, you know that's all over the place in the Old Testament, right? We see that all over the place, this theme of the shepherd. God is seen to be a shepherd of Israel. He takes care of his people. In fact, if, you, if you're looking in the book of Numbers, and I think it's a parallel to this passage, you might jot this down and read that section later on this afternoon. Numbers 27, 13. It's actually really interesting um, that Moses is basically what's happening in Numbers 7, uh, 27 is Moses is getting is, is informed that he's not going to enter the promised land and he is on the brink. So he's basically he's going to die and God is going to replace Noah with somebody else. And so Noah, uh, I said Noah, Moses. That was a trick. You're paying attention. So Noah's before Moses in the Bible, and then uh, Moses. So Moses says to, to the Lord, he prays to him in verse 16 of chapter 27, Let the Lord, the God of the spirits of all flesh, appoint a man over the congregation, who shall go out before them and come in before them. That's this leading. Who shall lead them out and bring them in. And the congregation of the Lord may not be as, here it is, a sheep that has no shepherd. And so this, this sheep with no shepherd theme is, is throughout the Old Testament, but I think it's coming from here in Numbers 20, 27. So the Lord says to Moses, take Joshua the son of Nun, a man in whom is the Spirit, and lay your hand on him. And, and Joshua did a great job, but he wasn't even as good as Moses. And then David would come and he would be a shepherd of Israel. And Isaiah picks up on this theme as well, and he's, he's beginning to lay, lay breadcrumbs of a, a shepherd like David, who's actually going to be better than David. He's going to protect his people, and he's going to be far better than these shepherds that Israel has. Now, Ezekiel picks up on the same thing. So there's this anticipating, kind of intense longing for a good shepherd to come. And here's Jesus. He's there among the people, and he looks at them, and he says, these are like ones without a shepherd. Just like Moses was concerned about, just like David was concerned about, just like Isaiah and Ezekiel, they're all concerned about. So what does he do? He begins to teach them. He teaches them the Bible. That's what their need is. He teaches them many things. Judging by Jesus' other teachings, he's teaching them about himself, who he is, his kingdom. The necessity of putting faith in him and believing in him, that he is God's long-promised Messiah. He is the king. He's the true shepherd of Israel. He is the one who takes care of and meets all of your needs. The whole point that he's there is to, to deal with our biggest problem, our sin. And that by, by believing in him, you can have life in his name. Go back and read John 6 and see the types of things he's talking about in this context. He's teaching them. What does this engagement that Jesus have with the people show us? What is Mark trying to teach us? He's trying to teach us that Jesus is the good shepherd. And he sees the people's needs, not only the rest in the beginning, but also here they need a shepherd. And Jesus is acting as that shepherd. He provides care for the weary. Those who need a shepherd, he provides that for them. What are some implications for us? Well, I think, I think we should think about how to view our community, those people around us. And if our eyesight is not very good looking at them and seeing them, and we don't see clearly, put on Jesus' spectacles. Look through his eyes. What would he say about Georgia, Vermont? What would he say about your neighbors, your family members? 
he would look at them and he would say, they're shepherdless. You're not in this room because you're so smart. They're not out there because they're stupid. They're out there because they are like sheep without a shepherd. They need Jesus. Instead of looking at them, people who are non-Christians, and thinking that they're idiots and they don't have it together, and if they would just do what we do, they would have it together. That's not the picture at all. Look at Jesus through his compassionate eyes, looking at people and saying, they need a shepherd. Far too many non-Christians have had their curiosity quenched by insensitive Christians lacking compassion on them in their state. Of all people, we who were formerly in our sin, enslaved in it, and have now been liberated and are part of Christ's church, his people, should be the most sympathetic to those outside. And if you're here this morning and you don't know Christ, let me just tell you that this is to be our disposition towards you, and this is Jesus' disposition towards you. He loves people who are shepherdless, and he loves to bring them into himself. That's why he lingered with them and taught them about himself. It's a good model for us to how to respond to people around us is to be compassionate. Jesus gives them his time, which is really valuable. He had a finite amount, and he is very important, and he gives them his time. He also gives them himself through teaching. And I think this is important for us to see as Christians that some of the ways that we can help our community, people around us that don't know Christ, is that we can give them our time and we can give them Jesus. They need our time. Sometimes they need more time to process what in the world we're saying about Jesus. And you can invite them to church because church is the place where they see Jesus' people and they hear Jesus' words. So invite them to church. Invite them in, hospitality, evangelize them, give them the gospel. After all, only Jesus can meet and take care of everybody's greatest need. So we see Jesus give care for the needy, he gives rest for the weary, and finally he gives food for the hungry. This is in verses 35 through 44. This is interesting, this dialogue, this problem ends up arising. Did you notice... The disciples in Jesus' dialogue in verses 35 through 44. The disciples come to him as it's late, verse 35, and they say, it's a, this is a desolate place. It's basically like, this is the wilderness. We're out in the middle of nowhere. The hour is now late. Send them away into the surrounding countryside and villages that they may buy themselves something to eat. So this is the problem that they put their finger on. It's late. We don't have any food. No DoorDash, Uber Eats, no convenience stores, no ability to quickly get some food. They're in the middle of the wilderness in the first century. It's late. They have no options. Their needs. They need food. So the disciples' solution is not really a, let's say, compassionate one. It's a concerned one, but not as a good Send them away. 
Tell them to go home. And if we go to the surrounding town, maybe they can pick something up there, hopefully. Jesus' solution is actually a really good one, though they don't see it, and we probably don't see it initially. Verse 37, he answered them, you give them something to eat. Right? You, you feed them. You do it. You discover the need, now you do something about it. You hand them food. And what's their response to that? Verse 37. They said to him, Shall we go buy 200 denarii worth of bread and give them to eat? A denarii is a day's worth of wages, so roughly a half a year's worth of wages. We, we don't have enough money to buy them food. We can't do that. In other words, Jesus, this is impossible. You just told us to feed them. We can't take care of the needs. We don't have the money to do that. Actually, looking back, it almost sounds like the book of Numbers where Moses is like, how am I going to feed all these people? I can't take care of them. Right? It's the same thing. Well, Jesus gives them a surprising solution. He answered them, you know, give them something to eat. And then he said to them, verse 38, how many loaves do you have? Go and see. And so they go and get the the five loaves of bread and they get the two fish. So they have a small amount, very small amount. Some loaves of bread, two fish. Not not really going to feed 5,000 people, right? Plus women and children. Not likely to be able to break that bread down to that level that it's actually going to do the trick. So it doesn't seem likely. So he takes a small amount, and then verses 39 through 40, he commands them to sit in groups on the green grass. So they sat down in groups by hundreds and by fifties. And they do it. They sit down, and he begins to bless the food. Verse 41. He takes the loaves and the two fish and he looked up to heaven and said a blessing and he breaks the loaves and gives it to his disciples to set before the people and divided the two fish among them all. So the disciples actually do give it to them, don't they? In the end of the story, the disciples bring the food to the people, just like Jesus said. But they didn't see it because they forgot who they're dealing with, the one who can meet all the needs. Uh, this, this story here is a, a comedy not in the way we think about it, though there are some funny aspects to it, but comedy in the traditional sense where you have a problem at the beginning and it ends at the end. It's resolved. And so this is what's happening. This problem is being resolved by the people, by Jesus, for the people. So much so that they actually have extra after they eat and they're filled. So it's not just a little, but it's excess. So the the problem that the people had was they were hungry. The problem the disciples had was they, they had no food. The solution Jesus provides is he makes food out of thin air. He creates it. So what's the point? Well, obviously he's doing something that God has done in the Old Testament. So something God can only God can do. He's divine. He has the power to to create, to make food, to to satisfy needs. So he, he can only Jesus can take care of their needs. I mean, he's God, and he takes care of them. He creates the food. Just as God fed the the, uh, Israelites in the wilderness with the manna, just as he gave them meat to eat, he provides for them in the wilderness. They're in a desolate place. Here is Jesus, the good shepherd, the promised one, comes and he provides the food. Only Jesus can do this. Only he can take care of your needs. There's also some contrast to see as you think about it. 
There's a a great contrast, and I think this is why Mark puts it here in his gospel. Prior to verse 30 is the story about John the Baptist and his death, you know, where he inserts that in there. And it's just helpful to think of the contrast, to see the beauty of Jesus in contrast to Herod. Herod was in his palace throwing a party to feed everybody. In his fortress, Jesus is out in the middle of the wilderness feeding the multitudes. Herod is concerned about himself and feeding himself. Jesus is about giving himself to people. Herod is about celebrating himself in his birthday. Jesus is about celebrating the glory of God and being the shepherd. Herod's about Herod. Jesus is about God and people. Self-giving versus taking. And that contrast is intended, I think, to to color the way we look at this and see that Jesus is completely different than any other leader or ruler. He always is. He's unique and he's worthy of that worship. We're also to note a couple other themes as we think about the Bible. In, In the Bible, wilderness usually means desolation or danger. You might think of wilderness as a peaceful place to go on a hike on the afternoon. I can assure you that wilderness areas in Israel are not like beautiful Vermont. It's a place of desolation, wild animals, danger, difficulty. So when Jesus is tempted in Mark chapter 1, and he goes out to the wilderness, that's supposed to be a place of desperation and fragility and weakness. No food, no water, dangerous animals, bad things happening to people. Even Israel wandering in the wilderness on their way out of Egypt into the promised land, that whole time period of wilderness wandering was demonstrating their vulnerability and their weakness. What's so remarkable about this, just like in the Old Testament when God provided food for his people in the wilderness, is that the wilderness, which is supposed to be a place of desperation and danger and lack, turns into a place of abundance. It's an abundance area. When God showers his blessing on his people, whether it's the manna or the bread here or the water in the wilderness, it's God providing for his people. So we're supposed to understand against the the kind of the dark backdrop that God knows how to meet the needs of his people. He can care for you. But again, this is picturesque also of some, some other themes that we find in the Old Testament. Even think about Moses when he's arranging the people in Exodus 18.25. He arranges the people, and it actually says in Exodus 18.25 that he arranges the people in thousands, five hundreds, hundreds, and tens. And I think Mark thinking here, this is, this is a greater Moses that's come that arranges the people to sit down on the grass in these small numbers, and then he cares for them. But I think even more than these pictures that we have, is we have the, the, one of the most beautiful and cherished psalms that we know. And that's the 23rd psalm. I want you to think about that 23rd psalm in light of this passage. In fact, if you keep your thumb in Mark, we'll just turn there as we kind of wrap things up here. Psalm 23. Many of you could probably quote it by heart, but you could certainly read it and think of what Jesus is doing here in this passage. Think of their needs. They need rest. They need teaching. They need a shepherd. They need food. We read in 23rd Psalm, a Psalm of David, The Lord is my shepherd. 
I shall not want. Or maybe I shall need nothing. My needs are met. He makes me lie down in green pastures. Think of the green in the scene. And then being satisfied with the bread and the fish, this late night meal. He leads me beside still waters where I may drink and be refreshed. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his own name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil for you, my good shepherd, are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. And I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Jesus makes a banquet in the wilderness because he's the good shepherd. He means to show us that he is our shepherd. And he, if we are in him, we shall not want. He will take care of all of our needs. And I think what Mark is trying to show us is, is that ultimately Jesus is better than Moses. He's better than Joshua. He's better than David. He's, he's, he's better than any anticipated shepherd throughout history. In fact, he provides something even better than one meal. It's not just about giving these guys a sandwich and some fish. That's not the ultimate point. The point here that Jesus would make in John chapter 6 is that actually he can satisfy your soul. He can take care of your biggest problem. In other words, the freight of, the, the, the weight of human hunger, no matter what freight you try to put into to try to satisfy that, it cannot work. Only God can satisfy that freight. There's nothing, there's nothing that can truly satisfy your soul. Nothing could bear the freight of your deepest desires. Only Jesus can do that. Only He can satisfy your, your greatest need. Romans chapter 8 would put it this way. In verse 32. He who did not spare His own Son, but delivered Him up for us all, how will He not with Him graciously give us all things. Here's Paul's argument. You guys have a big problem. The big problem is sin. It's your biggest problem. It's your greatest need how to get sin resolved. How do I deal with my sin? What's going to happen when I die? I stand before God and I have to be judged for my sin. What? How do I get this problem? This is the greatest need we have. And Paul says, oh, I have one that takes care of that greatest need. God did not spare His own Son, but delivered Him up for us all to deal with this greatest need. He actually went to the cross. This good shepherd, this compassionate, loving, gracious, self-giving shepherd goes to the cross to pay the penalty that you deserve and I deserve. We've sinned against God and we deserve judgment and wrath. And because God is good, He requires payment for that sin. He's not like our grandpa that would just say, oh, don't worry about that when you mess up and pat you on the rear and give you some candy and say, go play outside. It's not a big deal that you did this, you did that. No, it's a big deal. We sin against God. And sin must be punished. Otherwise, God is not good. He's a compromiser. And so Jesus comes to bear the penalty of our sin. He bears the guilt and shame in the cross. He pays the penalty. 
when he cries out on the cross, it is finished. What does he mean? It means that he has satisfied God's righteous requirement. He has paid the debt. Your debt, dear sinner, is paid in Christ. Fully satisfied. The the, the penalty of sin and death and hell has been satisfied. Spurgeon said, Jesus drank damnation dry. It's gone. And there upon the cross, he satisfied God's just wrath against our sin. He paid for it. So Paul's argument is this. If he can take care of your big problem, your sin problem, he can take care of your relatively smaller problems the rest of your life. So Paul's saying, if you can trust him over here, and you can, you can trust him over here, everything else. This Jesus can meet our greatest need. Only Jesus can meet your ultimate need. And interestingly enough, as you look through the lenses of this passage and you, you think about it and you're, you're restless from life, but we're restless without Christ. He's our rest. And as we go about in this, this world, we need His care. We need the shepherd's care and He provides that care for us. Then He feeds us. Again, not primarily lunch, but He gives him, Himself to us. That as we feed upon the bread of Christ, His Word, symbolically through the Lord's Supper, we we eat the bread and drink the cup, which is feeding upon Him and receiving His grace through that. It communicates the reality that as you believe in Christ, you are part of Christ and your soul is satisfied. He nourishes us through that. So dear brothers and sisters today, as you look at this passage, I want you to see your Savior in motion, moving around, being that good shepherd. And be reminded afresh that he's the one who provides you rest. That he is your shepherd who cares for you and wants you to be taught his word. And that he feeds you. He feeds you with himself. And if you're here and you're not a Christian, I want you to know that the door of, open, the door of grace is wide open. That if you will come to this Jesus and ask His forgiveness and believe upon Him, that He will give you rest for your soul. He will happily lead you as the Good Shepherd. And He will feed you with Himself and His Word every single day. And when that dark day of death does come, He won't abandon you. That Good Shepherd that laid down his life for his sheep and took it back up again, will come and receive you unto himself. So that death, that which was formerly feared, becomes an escort, a taxi, to bring you to glory. Bringing you into Christ's presence, where you will feast forever and enjoy him. The great banquet, not in the wilderness, but in the new Jerusalem. That's our greatest need. And he meets it. He is the good shepherd. Let's trust in him. Let's pray. Our Father, we pray this morning that as we look at the footprints of Christ in the, in the Gospel of Mark, that we would see his compassion and his love and his power. And whether for the first time or the hundredth time, we would behold him through the eyes of faith and cast everything upon him. 
as we turn to your table to come to the Lord's Supper, may you feed and sustain and nourish us, even as we trust in Jesus. We pray in his name. Amen.